All right, we're continuing together our study in our book from the Garden of Eden to um, the glory of heaven, and we are in chapter 9, and we're dealing with the second chapter that um, explains the Old Covenant, and uh, it talks about the things that pass away and the things that remain. One of the things that we've learned is that the Old Covenant is not a permanent covenant. That is, it was never intended to last forever. And so we likened it, or our author likened it, I should say, to the scaffolding and bracing that you put up when you build a building. And so when you build a building, uh, while it's under construction, you have all this scaffolding around it, but that's never meant to be a permanent part of the building. And once the building is completed, then the scaffolding is taken away, never to be re-erected or reused again on that building. And so God established the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant... Um, finds its fulfillment in the new covenant. But until it reaches that point, it has the scaffolding of the old covenant built around it. And so we looked at Galatians chapter 3 last time, and we saw that uh, the old covenant was added 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant was established. It then continued on for about uh, another 1,500 years or so when it was dismantled, when the Abrahamic covenant found its maturity and its fruition in fulfillment in the new covenant. And so uh, it was added for the purpose of restraining the sin of Israel. It was added for the purpose of uh, keeping Israel from mixing in with the surrounding nations and losing her national identity. It was added to create all kinds of cultural distinct distinctions between Israel and the nations around her so she would remain a separate, defined people through whom, of course, Messiah would come and the fulfillment of the new covenant would be achieved, or the establishment of it, I should say. And uh, so anyhow, um, that was the purpose. So uh, when we say the old covenant passed away, it's important for us to understand that some aspects of it did pass away and other aspects continue to remain. So last time we began to talk about what passed away and we said that the ceremonial law had passed away. And what this refers to is all of those forms of worship, all of those patterns of dress, all of those ceremonial observances um, that uh, Israel engaged in that were a means of making the people of Israel outwardly and culturally distinct from the surrounding nations. Uh, their diet was different. Um, their clothing was different. Uh, their agricultural practices were different. Um, they, they, they worshiped God uh, on one day of the week, uh, which was different from, from the nations around them. Uh, there was a whole lot of, of things that were done to keep them separate. However, um, once the gospel was under the new covenant to spread throughout the whole world, and we were to go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature, then all those cultural barriers uh, that comprised the ceremonial law that stood between us and other peoples needed to be deconstructed. And so we saw then that in Ephesians chapter 2 that Christ tore down the middle wall of partition that stood between the Jew and the Gentile. And that middle wall of partition were all the laws and the ordinances of the ceremonial law. 
And um, so that's why now we can go into cultures and live in those cultures uh, and adapt to those cultures uh, and bring the gospel to those cultures because we're not called to um, remain separate and distinct from them in terms of merely cultural practices and differences. So we talked about the fact that under the new covenant, we need to beware of reestablishing new uh, Christian subculture distinctives and be sure that uh, we don't think that somehow American culture is Christian culture. Um, Christianity can be lived out in a variety of cultures and um, not all of the things that we do as Christians um, are, are required of other peoples. For example, you might go into another culture and people sit on the floor cross-legged um, and the men sit separate from the women. Um, nothing wrong with that. We don't need to build pews and, and have mixed congregations if that's not the way they do it there. It's not of the essence of the gospel. Now, today we want to then move on and, and see that not only has the new covenant, has God stripped away the ceremonies that were meant to be temporary, uh, but he's also stripped away the civil law that was for the purpose of building a a civil theocracy um, in which uh, there was no division between the church and the state. And so the Old Covenant, uh, we have seen as we've looked at, at uh, Exodus chapter 19, and especially verses um, 5 and 6, the Old Covenant was a national covenant, and Israel was ruled directly by God as a theocracy, and it was the duty of the civil government to enforce the religious and the moral laws and the ceremonial laws upon the people of God. And so what we see is that the kingdom of God and the nation of Israel in her theocratic expression here on the earth and her visible physical manifestation, that was the kingdom of God on earth. And this is one of the reasons why the Jews had such a hard time accepting Jesus as their Messiah when he came because they expected Messiah would come and he would reinforce this theocratic kingdom. He would uh, reestablish its independency from Rome and all the oppressors and that Israel would eventually militarily uh, take over the entire world and that the kingdom of God on earth would expand and grow um, uh, like it did under Solomon. They'd conquer all the nations around them, throw off the yoke of Rome, and their oppressors would become their servants, and they would become the kingdom uh, that would fill the whole earth. However, when Jesus came, he preached a different kind of kingdom. He taught that the kingdom of God is not invisible, external, physical, military, uh, civil, theocratic structures but rather the kingdom of God was within you. That is, it was inside of your inner being. It was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom where God ruled not in nations, but a kingdom where God ruled in the church. And so turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts, the first chapter. And you'll see that... <clears throat> there was still this expectation of this expanded uh, theocratic kingdom on the part of the, uh, even the disciples. And so Acts chapter 1, 
<clears throat> and um, <clears throat> it says in verse 6, they're speaking to the resurrected Christ here. It says, when they therefore were come together, speaking to the resurrected Christ, they, that is the eleven apostles, asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That is, are you now going to throw off Rome? Are you now going to reestablish Israel's political, theocratic kingdom? And Christ's answer in verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. When he said these things, he left. He was taken up. He ascended into heaven. And so when they asked him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? His fundamental answer was no. Uh, I didn't come to do that. And um, my purpose isn't to do that now. My purpose for you is not to form an army or a political block and uh, try to reestablish a political uh, authority or power. He says, my goal is for you to bear witness to the gospel, to uh, function through the strength, not of an army, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit, not to conquer uh, foreign nations, but to conquer human hearts. And the way you conquer human hearts is by bearing witness to me. And I want that witness to be a worldwide witness. And so Jesus' vision of the kingdom that he was attempting to uh, teach his apostles was radically different than the vision of the kingdom uh, under the, the old covenant. So the point is, is that Christianity, that is new covenant Christianity, was never intended and never planned by God to be a political force or a political power. It wasn't ever designed to be formed into a political nation. Okay. Now, there have been times when Christianity has had outward political power and outward political sway and has marched her armies, but those have always been the times in which the church was the most apostate and when the church was the least effective at doing what God had commissioned her to do, which is to uh, build the church. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail upon it. He didn't say I was going to build my political, physical kingdom with armies and national borders and those types of things. And so under the new covenant, with the great commission, we are not seeking to build a theocratic state. That is not the mission of the new covenant church. Now there is a movement called Christian Reconstructionism, and they believe that the calling and mission of the church is to create Christian governments and enforce Old Covenant law upon civil societies. And R.J. Rushdoony is kind of the father of that movement, and uh, he's written a bunch of books, and there is a whole movement that follows that philosophy. Now, the church's mission is to spread the name of Jesus over the whole world. It is not to stir up political groups or political parties or political coalitions. That's not the, 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 the ministry of the church. Now, it's true that as individual people become saved and their hearts are transformed by Christ, 
so that they want to obey God's law, that pattern of behavior is going to have an impact on society. The way they vote, the way they behave, the kind of laws that they try to see implemented certainly are going to be impacted by Christianity. And so the, the model that we see for our political activity, if you will, is uh, modeled for us by people like Joseph and Daniel and Esther and Mordecai. These were believers who were Christians, but who lived under a secular government and they functioned within that secular government. And they didn't see their purpose in that government as Christianizing that government, but simply bearing witness for Christ in their position in that government. And so what we would say is, is it the church's mission to reform political structures? And the answer is no. But do individual Christians have an influence in their callings and vocations in reforming political structure? And the answer is clearly yes. And so what you do as an individual in terms of getting involved in politics and trying to see good men elected and good laws passed and bad laws put out, um, uh, you know, giving money to uh, political action committees so that um, um, biblical standards can be upheld, for you to do that as an individual is a godly and honorable thing. I do that. I encourage you to do that. But is that the church's mission? And the answer is, it is not the church's missions. The church's mission is to see people's hearts won to Christ by the gospel. And it is to establish not a kingdom of a national and an earthly character, but rather a kingdom of a global and of a heavenly character. In other words, Christianity has become transnational. When we go into a country as missionaries, our calling is not change that government into a Christian government. We don't even mess with the government. We don't care about the government. Our goal is to go in and to lead men and women to faith in Jesus Christ, to establish churches, and to build the kingdom of God by seeing people brought to Christ and brought to submission to Christ and begin to live in harmony with the laws of Christ. Now, some of those people may wind up either being government officials or becoming government officials. And so we see, for example, Joseph under Pharaoh. Now, he didn't try to turn Pharaoh's government into something other than what it was, but he did certainly... Um, exert a strong godly influence in that government. And Daniel, when he was under Nebuchadnezzar, and he was under Darius, and he was under Cyrus, uh, he certainly bore a powerful witness for Christ to these people. I believe Nebuchadnezzar actually became saved. Um, it, it seems pretty clear that he exercised faith in, in Daniel's God. Um, whether Darius and Cyrus did or not, I don't know. Darius, perhaps. Cyrus, not much information there on him. Uh, but nevertheless, Daniel exerted a witness for Christ. But once again, he didn't try to transform that political structure into a country that kept all of God's laws, though to the degree that he could keep them himself, he did. And by that example, had an influence on others as well. And then we see Esther, 
uh, under Ahasuerus and how that uh, she um, you know, pled with him for the life of her people and exercised wisdom in, in, in delivering the people of God from persecution under that government. So Christians can be involved in government, they can influence government, they can be a witness in government, but it's not the mission of the church primarily to transform governments. It's to transform people. As people are transformed, governments are impacted and changed. But that's a subordinate um, effect. It's not the primary goal. Now, the question then is, how does the theocratic kingdom that existed under the old covenant, then how are we going to view that and apply that under the new covenant? And the answer is, we take the civil government of the old covenant and apply it not now to civil governments in the New Testament so much as we apply it to church government because the new theocratic kingdom is the church. Whereas before Israel was the theocratic kingdom of God on earth, now the church is the theocratic kingdom of God on earth. And that's where Christian Reconstructionism goes wrong, okay? Is they once again want to uh, eliminate the distinction between church and state, and they want to continue to see uh, a political kingdom established, which is uh, congruent with the kingdom of God. But instead, what's happened is we've gone from a physical, political kingdom of God on earth to a spiritual and heavenly kingdom of God on earth, and the church is the new theocratic state and kingdom. And so what we need to do then is we need to uh, keep God's law in the church, just like Israel was supposed to keep God's law as a nation. Now, what happened to Israel as a nation, the theocratic kingdom, when they didn't keep God's law? Well, they came under judgment and persecution and and slavery and dispersion and all kinds of unhappy things happened, right? Well, in the same way, what happens to the new covenant church when she does not keep the laws of God that apply to her? Well, the same thing. The church becomes weak. The church becomes uh, ineffective. The church comes under the judgment of God. And the church winds up becoming dominated by... Um, foreign governments, if you will, uh, oppressive governments, um, and by the emissaries of Satan who parade as the apostles of light in the church. And so you see men like Archbishop Rowan running the Church of England, uh, who's no more saved than Job's turkey. Um, and so the church winds up with very corrupt people running it, very corrupt practices in it. Uh, things like homosexual marriages become sanctioned in the church. And the church just becomes an absolute disaster, just like Israel became an absolute disaster. So as the church conforms to God's word in its government, in its discipline, in its worship, and in its life, then it exhibits to the world, hey people, here's the kingdom of God, and here's what it looks like. Just like Israel was supposed to be a vision to the world of what the kingdom of God looked like, so the church fulfills that role now. So... The point is, is that um, the church is to be a witness by its obedience to the law of God and by living the theocratic kingdom laws within itself. That's how it's a witness to the civil authority. That's how it's a witness to 
the nations around as to what God is like and what Christianity is like and what um, the kingdom of God actually looks like. Now, one of the problems that we struggle with is that we see a huge amount of injustice in civil governments. Um, and we uh, want to reform them to try to eliminate a lot of those injustices. And there's certainly nothing wrong with desiring that. Uh, we're told in, in the scriptures to pray for the civil authorities that are over us, that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. As Christians now, we don't become indifferent to civil government, but we just recognize that the reform of it is not the focus. And so Christianity can flourish under any kind of government, if it's socialist, if it's communist, if it's fascist, uh, if it's atheist, uh, or if it's um, got a Christian heritage like America does, the church does equally well under all of those regimes because um, it functions really independently of them and uh, is unaffected by them in terms of the things God has called her to do, which is to worship, to preach the word, to um, administer the sacraments and to exercise discipline and to preach the gospel. You can do that under any kind of government. You can do that in any kind of cultural setting. Um, and so that's why the new covenant is particularly adapted to worldwide spread, whereas under the old covenant, it was not. You don't see Israel sending out missionaries and establishing um, you know, synagogues and stuff in foreign lands. They just didn't do that. And the reason why they didn't do that is because everyone had to come and worship in the temple three times a year. And so you couldn't take it and spread it throughout the world. It was so culturally distinct and so geographically limited that its ability to grow was really stymied. And its purpose wasn't to evangelize the whole world. Its purpose was to um, preserve the people in the kingdom until Messiah would come. And then there was going to be the worldwide expansion. And so you see, for example, in Isaiah, all these prophecies about how that Israel uh, was eventually going to incorporate the Gentiles. Well, what happened, of course, is that ultimately Israel became the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, those who are descended but from Abraham uh, through Christ and thus uh, become spiritual Jews like we are and we spread the kingdom of God throughout the world. So what we um, often want to do is we want to kind of try to establish a theocracy because it's much more pleasant to live under if you have a government that's administering Christian laws instead of a government that's administrating really oppressive and, and ugly laws. And we cry about the um, injustice of our own government, um, and it is unjust in many ways, uh, but our purpose isn't to necessarily reform it as much as it is to see people who live under it saved and brought to faith in Christ. And if that's accomplished, then the kingdom is expanding just the way it's supposed to and functioning just as it ought, even if the nation itself, and in terms of its civil government, becomes increasingly um, ungodly. Now, <clears throat> I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 9, and um, I want to talk for a minute about how we do a spiritual warfare now. 
Now, uh, you're well aware that Israel did warfare with swords and shields and chariots and military stuff, right? And um, that's how they fought. That's how they defended uh, the kingdom. And that's how they expanded the kingdom is they used uh, physical, uh, if you will, carnal weapons. And uh, anyone who opposed Israel was attacked by Israel and defeated and destroyed by Israel because if Israel didn't do that, then those people would come and defeat and destroy Israel. So there was this physical warfare. And in Luke chapter 9 and verse 54, um, it says, um, we'll start out at verse 51. It says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that Jesus should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 52. And sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they, that is the village of the Samaritans, did not receive Jesus because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. He's just going to go there for a little while, but his real destination was Jerusalem. And you know, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. And the Samaritans said, you know, we're supposed to worship over here in this mountain. And the Jews said, no, we're supposed to worship at Jerusalem. And there was this big conflict between them. And so what the Samaritans were saying is, asked, look, if you're going to be a friend of the Jews and go to Jerusalem, we don't want anything to do with you. So they rejected Christ. Um, Verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, that the Samaritans had rejected Christ and said, we don't want you if you're going to go to Jerusalem. They said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did, or Elias, Elisha, I believe it is. Uh, But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. Now here it is. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, at this point in time, Jesus established a very important principle. And that is we don't physically attack those who oppose us. Now, the Jews under the old covenant theocratic kingdom did. And they were supposed to. It was their job. Signed to them by God. But now, the nature of the kingdom and the defense of the kingdom has entirely changed. The nature of this kingdom has become inward, spiritual, and heavenly. And the weapons of our warfare now are not carnal. But they are the whole armor of God that is described in Ephesians 6. And so we use the belt of truth. We use the breastplate of righteousness. We have the helmet of salvation. We have our feet shed with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We have the sword of the spirit. We have the shield of faith. And these are the weapons now that we defend the kingdom of God with, not physically killing people. And so because the nature of the kingdom has changed, the nature of the warfare that the kingdom engages in has changed also now. This is the exact opposite of how Islam functions. Islam believes that to bring in the kingdom of Allah is to impose the religious law and the civil law of their religion upon the people by force. And so Islam has been spread since 610 AD uh, by the sword. And... uh, 
they force people to either submit to Islam or be put to death. And um, they function now like Old Covenant Israel did in many respects in that they see the kingdom of God as political and their goal is to impose Sharia law on all peoples without exception because they believe that this is Allah's will and this will bring glory to Allah. And uh, this is what we must not fall into. Here we are not using carnal weapons. Here they are using carnal weapons and it seems like they're winning and we're not. Uh, because it seems like the physical is always more efficient and more productive than the spiritual is. But what we have to do is we have to trust God as to the nature of his kingdom and as to the methodology for spreading his kingdom and as to the means he's provided for the defense of his kingdom. And the means he's provided for the defense of his kingdom is the shield of faith. And the means he's provided for the advancement of his kingdom is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we preach and we pray and we set an example and they use car bombs and flying planes into buildings and uh, riots and murders to accomplish the advancement of their kingdom. We must not fall into the temptation to use their methodologies because they seem to work. And you remember in the parable of the wheat and the tares, um, you know, you had the wheat sown and then an enemy came at night and sowed the tares among the wheat and they sprang up together and the disciples said to, you know, to the master, will you that we rip out the tares? And he said, no, let them both grow up together, lest in pulling out the tares, you pull out the wheat with them. And in the end, in the harvest, we'll harvest the wheat We'll gather the tares and they'll be burned. And so it is in this world, we are not to attack, destroy, murder, if you will, the unsaved. Because you know what? Some of them might be God's elect. You know, God's elect don't have a big E on their forehead. And uh, we might have thought we ought to uh, waste Maston because he was a bad guy. But guess what? At 52, he got saved. Well, what if you'd have looked at him at 42? He would have said, Psh, He's a tear, you know, grab him, throw him in the fire. But, but that's not how it is. And so we have to allow wicked people to do their wicked things and to propagate their wicked agendas while we do righteous things and we use the, the, the spiritual weapons to advance the kingdom of God because we don't know ultimately who all the weed are going to be. And so Christ's purpose now is not to engage in political reform. It's not to engage in military activity. It's not to use physical weapons like Islam does to try to advance his kingdom. But rather, we are supposed to um, use the, the spiritual weapons he's provided us with. Thus, our memory verse for today. You remember that Jesus was being interviewed by Pilate just before he was convicted and crucified. And Pilate says to him, are you a king? Because that was the accusation. He's the king of the Jews. And Jesus said, well, um, I'm not a king in the sense you understand it. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. And what he means by that is my kingdom's not like the kingdoms of this world. It doesn't proceed from the power bases that this world builds its kingdoms out of.
He says, if, this kingdom, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would pick up their swords and fight. And you remember when Peter started to do that, Jesus said, stop it. And um, so he said, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence. And in this statement and in the statement that Jesus made um, to, to John and to uh, James, uh, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so our purpose then is to pursue a spiritual theocracy with spiritual weapons. That spiritual theocracy is the church, and it functions under any form of civil government that may be there. My primary goal is not to reform those governments. Those governments will be affected as a more and a larger and larger percentage of the population gets saved. But, uh, you know, just like with America, the vast majority of men who founded America were professing Christians and tried to order the nation according to Christian principles. And as a result, we're tremendously blessed. But, you know, the believers who function under Islamic or atheistic kingdoms, they're blessed too. And those churches grow and the kingdom is established in advance there and the theocratic kingdom in the churches prosper. And if we want to be a witness to our civil government about how they need to obey God's laws, and they do, then we need to be obeying God's laws right in our church. And I believe one of the reasons why the civil government has gone downhill so bad is it was led that direction by the church who wasn't obeying God's laws. And part of the judgment on the church who doesn't obey God's laws is they get to live under a government that doesn't either. So the best way we can clean up government people is to clean up the church. You clean up the church and the government will get cleaned up automatically. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for <clears throat> the fact <clears throat> that we have a bigger, better, uh, more pure kingdom than theocratic Israel had. <clears throat> we see in her citizenry uh, a mixed multitude. But in the church, Father, uh, they all know you from the least of them to the greatest of them. <clears throat> and Father, we just pray that you would help us as, as a theocratic kingdom here in Sovereign Grace Bible Church to honor your law, obey your law, and live it out uh, in our lives as Jesus has taught us. Help us not to be impatient with the uh, spiritual weapons that we use. Help us not to, in impatience, seize the carnal weapons of this world. For Father, that's not how your kingdom is advanced. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things and to apply them in the proper fashion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.